We're going to be in the book of James, um, the book of James this evening. Uh, I took it upon myself under the advisement of pastor. That makes it sound like it was my idea. Um, as Christians, uh, if you've been saved for a while, Lord willing, you've read through your Bible a number of times. You've experimented with different reading reading through the Bible, reading through chronologically, studying a book, studying a topic. And after about 10 years, 15 years, you're like, okay, I know I need to be reading my Bible, but I need something new, something to continue to drive my search for truth, right? And so uh, one of the books that I'm going to study in depth this, this year is the book of James. Um, for a long time, and I got this from my father, I'm a huge supporter of young people reading the book of Proverbs. Uh, if there was any book that I could take out of the Bible, put a different title on it, and mail it to every young person in the world, it would be the book of Proverbs. Because Proverbs contains the truths they need for life. Now, the problem with Proverbs is if you go through it, there's not really a clear salvation emphasis. It's there if you know what you're reading. But the book of James is very similar to that. Um, and so we're going to start here. Throughout the year, I'll have opportunities to preach, and we'll probably, unless the Lord directs otherwise, be back in the book of James. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about James in the context of our, our life, because the reality of it is we could talk about all kind of biblical theory, we could talk about all these wonderful things you should know, but unless we take what we know, and we do, we've wasted our opportunities. Um, my, uh, you, all of you know my life is filled with children. Not just at my house, but at my job. They're everywhere, all right? Um, and one of, the, one of the things that's come into clear focus for me in the last couple of years is if we don't teach them to do, we failed. Now, we can teach them knowledge, and we are, and parents are. But teaching them don't do is not nearly as important as you need to do this. Um, and so that opportunity is presenting itself in the book of James. Um, and I find it amusing. We're in January. Pastor preached on, you know, trials. Pastor preached on strife. Pastor preached on these negative things. This is going to be a negative message too. All right, I'm sorry. Well, I'm not sorry, but it is. But. And so let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into this, uh, and we'll look at the book of James. Father, would you help us tonight? Our one desire is to understand from your word what you would have us to do. Lord, you've spoke to my heart today about this thing, the, the things that we're going to talk about. Father, you, you desire to speak to each one of us. Lord, would you use me as a conduit? Father, nothing that I'm going to say tonight comes from my own intelligence or my own wisdom. It comes from your word. So, Lord, would you help us to listen with an ear for truth and a desire to do what's right? Give us strength, Lord. We love you. We thank you so much for allowing us to be here. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. So, this is the title of the book of James, the series that I'm going to eventually put together at some point. All right? Reality and religion. If you look at the book of James, that's the, that's the summary. How do I live what I'm learning? That's the problem. Because I, I could tell you all kinds of Bible doctrines and theories and how to do and how to, but unless I do, <laughs> what am I, a dictionary? I'm an, I'm an encyclopedia. I'm useless. You stick me on a shelf, you pull me out when you have to do a paper. That's about the usefulness of an encyclopedia. Maybe level the couch if you're in that situation. 
But what's reality? You say, well, I know religious people. Uh, I was talking to my wife about uh, a gentleman that I've, I've gotten to meet in, in, uh, a couple times, and he ha- he, essentially he has no time for religion. He's, he comes from a very religious family. No time for religion. Why? Because something happened that we would say turned him off to religion. But what type of people turn people off to religion? Those who say but don't do. I've never met anyone who said, man, I went to church, and this Sunday school teacher, he taught me all this stuff. He said, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. And then he prayed for me, and he visited me, and he would come by at Christmas and and bring a present if my family didn't have money for presents, and that turned me off. No. It's always, well, this person told me to get out of their seat in the church, or this person was talking about me behind their back. It's never about someone who's doing what they're supposed to. It's always about a Christian who's not behaving as a Christian should. Now, if you know anything about James, there's, there are essentially three men named James in the New Testament. For the sake of time, we're not going to go through all of them. The one we're talking about here is the half-brother of Jesus. All right? uh, he is a child of Mary and Joseph. All right? That means, put the dots together, Mary conceived Jesus of the Holy Ghost. She was a virgin. She had Jesus, and then they had a bunch of kids. Okay, if you read your Bible, that's how it happened. They had a bunch of boys and some girls. We don't know how many girls were, but there was at least three or four boys. Okay? Imagine growing up in the same house as Jesus. Okay? We'll talk about that at a different time. Okay? Um, but the reality of it is, James, uh, at some point, came face to face with the fact that his brother was different. Now, historically, if we read the New Testament, we read it carefully, we find that James didn't buy. He didn't buy in to Jesus being the Messiah. Not until Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. If you read in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that who did Jesus, one of the people named that Jesus went to see, it was James. Why? Because James saw it, but he wasn't sure why. James was raised in a very devout Jewish family. He would have been a Pharisee if we looked at him in that day and time. Not a Pharisee in behavior, but a Pharisee in, in mental ability. He was very smart. We find in the book of Acts, he's a leader at the Church of Jerusalem. At that time period, one of the most influential churches in the known world. And he will stand up for, th- we need to hold to tradition. We need to follow the Old Testament. Well, at that point, none of the other books have been written, so that's a good choice. Follow the Bible. But some would say that James leaned a little bit towards the legalistic side. Whereas, okay, he's one of the, he was one of the gentlemen that was part of the, the discussion, we'll say, about circumcision, whether it's proper for us to identify with the Jewish faith or should we not identify with the Jewish faith? Is Judaism different than Christianity? And so James is the one writing this book. One of the unique things, and I didn't realize this until I started studying, we say James is the Proverbs of the New Testament, and it is. It's very practical, rubber meets the road, simplistic advice. It's one of the few books in the Old Testament that really doesn't have any doctrinal thesis attached to it. Hebrews, Jesus is better. You want to know why Jesus is better than any other God or any other deity? Read the book of Hebrews. You can't get around it. I read some of the other Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians. You find some things. Man, this book is centered around this doctrine. James is not a doctrine book. It's a, hey, you're going to face this in your life. First couple of verses. Robert, you're going to face trials. Amen. Been there in the last couple of days. How do we deal with that? 
James is a very practical, practical writer. All right. Now, what's the focus of James? Well, on living the Christian life. You'll find as we go through the book of James that the word religion is mentioned, and the concept is there, but it's not religion as in we come to church, we have procedures and traditions that we follow. No, this religion he's talking about is an outward religious behavior. This is not so much what we believe, it's what we do. And so for us, in the day and age we live in, with Jesus Christ coming back soon, this is, this is hey, you need to be nailing this down every day. Because if we're not behaving as a Christian, what good are we? Let's go a step farther. Okay, we say, well, we shouldn't act like the lost. Amen. We shouldn't act like the other people who are religious around us either. You say, what do you mean, Mr. Davies? We all know good people, some people even say, that go to other churches, other denominations, and there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, they may be Christians. But what I am going to say is if anybody ought to have the truth and live it out, it ought to be the people of Fellowship Baptist Church. It ought to be me. When I go to Walmart, when I go to Lowe's, when I go to basketball games, when I go shopping, I ought to be the literal exemplification of Christ. Now, I'm not perfect, but people ought to be able to look at me and say, there's something different about that guy. In a good way, not in a bad way, okay? We don't have enough of those people around, all right? But as we look at the book of James, what's he saying? He's saying, hey, we're not so much, he's not so much focused on, hey, this is false doctrine. Hey, this is what false teaching looks like. Hey, this is what false beliefs you're believing, and we need to address these. No, he's focused on listening. Uh, he's, saying, he's telling his, his readers, the holy wisdom that you've gained from studying God's Word needs to translate into a heavenly walk. You need to do, all right? Your belief needs to be mirrored in your behavior. Show us. And there are some people who say, well, James and the Apostle Paul, because you remember Paul said, I have faith, you have works. And there was, he says, show me your faith by your works, all right? And some people say, well, that's not what James says. James says we have to do. Works is more important. <laughs> no, if you read Paul and you read James, you put them together, it's a beautiful two-sided coin. That if we're saved, there's faith that operates in our life. But what does that faith show itself as? Who sees that faith? God does. Miss Patty Mack can't see my faith. What does she see? The works that are born by my faith. So it's all about what we do. Now, I spent... A couple of weeks at the beginning of the school year talking to the teenagers about being and not doing. Why? Because as young people, they can get very much into the habit of, well, I got to do this and I got to do that. And I gotta, I'm told to dress this way and I'm told to show up at church and I'm told to be involved in this. And a lot of young people will develop habits of doing without understanding there needs to be a being. But as adults, what do we get used to? Well, I'm a Christian. I show up at church. I give my tithe. I'm in the choir. I teach a Sunday school class, and we're, we're so about being that we forget we have to do besides the times we're here. We have to be involved. And so as we look at this this evening, I want you to understand very, very simply that the book of James deals with Christians facing the trials of life and how we can keep the right attitude. That's the first couple of verses we're going to look at. Let's read here in the book of James, chapter number 1. The Bible says James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. As we open this book, the first couple words, James, a servant of God, we say, yes, James was a preacher. He was a servant of God. What's that servant? That servant of God, that word servant, literally means a bondman. Right? This is not a slave in the concept we think of. Not as someone who's, oh, I'm chained, I've got to go over here. My boss makes me do this, and I've got to chain, I go over here. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a slave who was like that, but has been purchased and set free, but willingly of their own volition, decides to stay serving the master. You say, oh, what a great story ending. Freed from slavery, and because of the master, we choose to serve him. Yeah, except for that's reality for us as Christians. We were slaves to sin. We were paid for. Jesus bought us and set us free. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to turn around and serve him with everything that we have. This word translates literally. This is a literal translation. A slave who gives himself willingly to another, devoted to them, to the disregard of their own interests. This literally is a picture of one who voluntarily subjects themselves to their master of their own free will, out of love and devotion. So we find James is saying something just in that opening introduction. We tend to re- skip over the introduction. Oh, yeah, that's the, like, the to whom it may concern of the Bible, right? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the brethren of God, greeting. And now we're going to talk about Bible stuff, all right? There's, the, James is making a statement. He doesn't, he doesn't introduce himself. James, the brother of Christ. He doesn't say that. James, the pastor of Jerusalem. James, a follower of the Messiah. He doesn't say that. He says this. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of that is that we must also be servants. And then it says, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, lest you think, oh, so this is to the Jews. We don't have to listen. <laughs> Not really. This is to Jewish Christians. All right, this phrase, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad in the New Testament, uh, most often will refer to Jews who became Christian and because of persecution have been scattered all over the world. You understand world empires at this time period. When they conquer a nation, they take a bunch of people and they drag them with them. And then we conquer this other nation. Okay, we're going to leave some of you here. And what do we do? We divide up all these people groups so they can't get together and come up with a plan to overthrow us. It's a control thing. Rome did the same thing. Greece did the same thing. Babylon did the same thing. The Persians did the same thing. This is a normal pattern for world empires. And so we have, by the time period of Christ, Jews scattered all over the world. Today, Jews are scattered all over the globe. Uh, I read a statistic today that said half of the Jewish people in the world live in Israel, and then the next largest place to live is Western Europe, the United States, and then Russia. Okay, So there's Jews everywhere. So when, Paul's, when James is writing this, there's Jews scattered all over the world. There's some in, some in Italy, there's some in the Balkans, there's some in the Middle East, there's some over still in the Babylon area, there's some scattered down into Africa. He says, hey, those of you that are Jewish and you've been saved, this letter's for you. What does he say? The first thing he says, he says, my brethren, 
That's how you know he's writing to Christians. He's not writing to Jews. He says, count it all joy. As I, as I study this idea, the, the phrase, there's a word in verse number two that we say diverse temptations. If we're not careful, we interpret temptations in the wrong direction. We think of temptations as in the carried in front of the donkey, trying to get you to do sin. That's not what it's talking about. This word temptations uh, is translated elsewhere in James as the word trials, testing, right? Evaluation. This is not talking about sin. It's talking about Christians being put in a situation where they now have to learn something, okay? As I was reading about this, uh, there's a gentleman, uh, he was was pastor all over the United States uh, in 1930s through the 1970s. He died in 1983. Uh, His name uh, was, let me see where I wrote it down here, Richard Soome. And he wrote about the book of James. He said it's a the, the James chapter 1 is about the blessings of irritations. And I thought, oh, <laughs> sounds like a book on children. The blessings of irritations. Okay. <laughs> but he goes on to say, irritations are not a bad thing. If we had eliminated all the irritations from your life, life would be pretty bland. All, right, all of us have lived long enough to understand uh, light without darkness means nothing. All right, if you, if you want to taste something sweet, you have to have a contrast. pastor does this every time we go out to eat. He'll eat all of his food except for one bite. He'll leave that one bite on the plate. He'll protect that plate. He'll have dessert, and then he'll eat that one bite. Well, I can't, I can't have sweet. The last thing in my mouth has to be something salty. Okay, every time. And I'm just like, then have a snack, all right? That's my, my brain, right? Okay, just eat it. And they're like, oh, well, I need something else. Well, let's go back, okay? This is why you go to a buffet, so you can just get whatever you want, whenever you want, right? The reality of it is, what would the irritations be if they, uh, what would our life be if there were no irritations? We've all, in the last seven days, that's being generous, faced trials of varying degrees, of varying intensity, and varying length. But those irritations, those trials, are designed for a purpose. Uh, Mr. Soom uses the oyster as an example. You've all heard this, right? A little grain of sand gets in the oyster. What does the oyster do? Oh, man! I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. No, he's like, ah, oh, okay. You know what the oyster does? He covers that irritation with something. And then he just leaves it alone. And you know what happens? After time, after time. A pearl. Pearls grow in nature, not on pearl oyster growing farms, which I didn't know they had, but apparently they do. They have farms where they grow oyster pearls, okay, in the oysters. Um, It it could take six months, could take up to four years, depending on the oyster. But you know what, what, as he was reading the book of James, Pastor Soom says this, that's the Christian. God put something in your life for a purpose, and it's going to hurt for a while, but it's going to yield something. He says this. This caught my attention. He says, every irritation and every trial is an opportunity for pearl culture to be developed. That's what we entitled our lesson tonight, a pearl culture. Don't miss this. What's our perspective when that sand shows up? 
is it, again, really? We just finished the last one. God, can I have a week off? Just no bad things, just a week. Okay, three days, just no bad things. And we have to go get into our prayer closet or go sit in the chair in the living room and stew for a couple hours. We're like, okay, fine. All right, we're going to have to deal with this. We might as well just pull up our big girl pants and deal with life. But you know what? That's not pearl culture. He says, if oysters did that, we'd never have pearls. What should our culture be? Every trial, every irritation is an opportunity to create pearl culture. The more trials we face, whether they're from God or from the devil, let's be honest, we make them ourselves, okay? The more opportunities we have to grow and to develop. He said this, which caught my attention. He said, in eternity, what a store of pearls we would have if only we took advantage of every opportunity. And so when we look at these opportunities that we're going to face, and they are opportunities, don't ever get into the rut as a Christian. I've been there, I've lived there, I've been there in the last couple of days, so I'm preaching from a position of experience, not authority. Right? Don't ever get to that spot where you're like, oh, again, really? Always say, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? That's a totally different mindset. What are you trying to teach me is there's a point to this, right? Not just, fine, we have to suffer through. We'll just tough it out. No, God, where are we going? What are you teaching me? And so as we look at developing a pearl culture as a Christian, there's a couple of things we need to understand about trials. First of all, the trial mindset. Look at verse number two. My brethren, speaking to Christians, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That word count literally means to allow this to happen, knowing that there's a purpose, okay? Knowing that there's a purpose. And then there's a word there, it says fall. We think of this as like falling into temptation. Oh, I didn't know sin was there and it got me. No, okay? If you pay attention, nobody's, okay, Used the phraseology. Nobody's dumb enough not to know sins there. Okay, none of us picked up our phone and said, oh, Facebook, there's nothing bad on here. Or the news, there's nothing bad on here. Okay, no, we know there's danger. What's it say? When we, that, that word fall into doesn't mean it's an accident. That word fall literally means it infers an action. This is so encouraging to me this afternoon when I read this. It's an action without history, meaning it hasn't lasted in the past, and without continuation. It's not going to last forever. Every trial, every irritation has a time limit. It will end. Now, how long it is, that's up to the Lord. But your irritation, your trial, is a limited time. Don't be discouraged. This is taking forever. Oh, what are we going to do? No, it will end. Are you learning? The trial mindset is this. Our mindset should be joy. Trials, understand this. This is foundational Christian teaching. Okay, that's the phrase we're going to use. Trials don't mean God's mad. Right? I had issue with my van that I found out about Monday. And I was like, God, oh, seriously. Just got my truck fixed so it's running right. Now there's another problem. I'm going back to horse and buggies. All right? 
And it wasn't like, okay, Lord, what did I do that you're doing this to me? That's a wrong perspective. God's not the one standing there going, let's see if I can make Miss Akers mad. Pokey, 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 pokey. Let's see if I can get her to do something wrong so that I can teach her something. But no. A trial is not a sign of God's displeasure with us. It's not. And sometimes we think that, oh, Lord, what did I do to deserve this? You, nothing. You do, this is not punishment. I have to say that to my children sometimes. I say, hey, come sit with Dad. I'd say, you're not in trouble. Why? Because they're like, oh, what did I do? I'm sad. I don't know. <laughs> and to sit there with power. You're not in trouble. I just want you to sit here. All right? Why? Because we automatically assume I did something. I'm, maybe because we have a guilty conscience. I just thought of that. No, that's a little too close to home. Let's move on. Trials are not punishment. They're growth events. I know that sounds a little progressive. Okay, I'm sorry. They are. It's an event that has the opportunity for growth. So what are we going to do with it? We're going to face a lot of trials. That's life. And our trials, in verse number two, they use the words diverse. That means variety. God uses variety when he gives us our trials. Okay, I don't know if variety is the spice of life in that situation, but that's what God does. They're not all the same things. Hey, and you, going through, uh, you and I going through trials should not surprise us. This shouldn't be like, whoa. What God? What did I do? No, First Peter chapter four says that trials are expected. This is going to happen. The, the, First Peter chapter four says, "Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which shall come upon us." This is the, the stuff that happened today in Richmond, with the bill getting defeated six to two. There was. Three groups of people, <laughs> okay? One is like, I told you this was going to happen. Bunch of liberals in Richmond. The other group's like, oh, we had so much opportunity. And the group in the middle is like, well, where do we go from here? We already have a plan where we're going. But understand, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised, All right? I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I don't, uh, I don't support the ostrich mentality. Just bury your head in the sand and just do. No. But I'm also not the guy who's like, let's go find out all the bad things happening so we can be worried about them. No. China. Ooh. North Korea. Yep. Okay. That's been around for like, I don't know, since the 50s. North Korea's been a problem. And then the 70s. And now today with the crazy guy pushing the button almost, right? Oh, whatever. You say, really? Yeah, whatever. Because if he pushes the button, what are you going to do? Wait, stop. This is not a good choice. No. We can't do a thing about it. Say, well, Mr. Davies, what about the economy? My 401k. Yeah. Everybody else, too. God's not like, oh, we better get to print more money. We have to print more money so the Christians have enough to give and so we have enough money. No. It's all under control. Why? Don't be surprised when negative things happen. Why? Because joy should be the default setting in every Christian's life. Now, joy is not like, woohoo! The oyster's not like, yes! Another sand particle! Let's go! That's not what the oyster does. Have you ever kicked over an anthill? As I kid, I mean, I do this all the time. Because where we grew up, especially in the summertime when it got dry, there'd be these little piles of dirt. Everywhere. 
We just think it's cool to kick them over. I don't know why, we just did, all right? It's like a little mushrooms are group. We stomp them, why? Because they're there. You know what happens when you kick an ant hell over? <sighs> I'm done. I'm moving somewhere else. This guy keeps kicking our hills over. No. Okay, let's build the hill back up. Why? What good does it do us as Christians to say, oh, really, God? <sighs> I'm tired of dealing with this. What good does that do? In every situation, God has a plan. In your life, whatever you're dealing with right now, God has a plan. God's taking you somewhere. He's not punishing you. He's taking you somewhere. Where are we going? And what am I supposed to be learning? Our trial mindset should be joy. But then look at verse number three. Knowing this, that's like, okay, guys, We've already understood this. This is a duh. This shouldn't be surprising. Knowing this, what? That the trying of your faith worketh patience. Not only the trial mindset is joy, but our trial's motive, the motive of this whole event is growth. It's growth. Understand, first of all, the trial's an event. What's an event? Something with a specific starting time and something with a specific ending time. It's not going to last forever. I didn't realize this until I looked this up. I felt very accomplished, Brother Branson, because I got out my keyword study Bible and looked up the word and then got my little thing that tells you what kind of part of speech it is in Greek, which I have no idea, but I just Googled it and it tells you things, okay? Do you know this, the trying of your faith? Trying is not a verb. It's not. It doesn't mean like the trying like this is, oh, we gotta, we're going to try our faith again, Michelle. Here we go. We're trying it. Right? No. Trying is a noun. It is an event. It's going to happen, and then it'll be done. The trying of our faith is something that's going to happen. And so understand that in all of this, in the trials and the temptations, the irritations, if we have the right spirit of joy, that our focus will be, what's God doing? Well, he's trying my faith. Who sees my faith? God does. You can't see my faith. You see the fruit of my faith, which is called works. The trying of my faith, that's between me and God. What do the people around me see if there's trying of my faith going on? Do they see joy? Or do they see that guy coming in church? Oh. How you doing, brother? Oh. Well, I'm here been a long week. I'm guilty of this. People say, hey, Mr. Davies, how you doing? Been a long day. That's me saying, oh, I shouldn't be saying that. I got yelled at. Uh, yelled at's a strong term. That's not a term. I got reprimanded by a Christian lady at the first school I walked at. Because I, I would walk around the building. I'm going to deal with this problem. I'm going to deal with that problem. All that kind of stuff. And I walk around. When I walk around, I don't walk around like this. I walk around with my head down. Not on purpose, just because my head's down. She said, hey, Mr. Davies. Pick your head up. It ain't that bad yet. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, don't look so sad. It'll be fine. Right? That was her life perspective. Bad things happen. Woohoo! Let's have a great time. Ride it out. What's the worst that's going to happen? God's got it under control. It's fine. There's some truth to that. You ever hit a trial and you're like, this, I don't know how this is going to end. 
I don't know how God's going to do this. Me neither. But he's still in charge, and he's still in control. It may be bad, but it's not going to be terrible. It's not going to end here. Understand, if we, have the, if we have the right focus in our trial, that growth is what we're after, we understand that our goal is to grow our patience. Now, what is patience? Patience is not the ability to put up with people around you. That is not patience. Okay, we think of patience and we think of, oh, you mean with the people around me. And now, while there is patience needed with that in our definition of patience, that's not what patience means. Patience literally means perseverance. Perseverance. Steadfastness. Constancy. The Strong's Concordance was said this. Patience is the characteristic of a New Testament Christian who is unswerved from this deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and to piety. What's his goal? What is patience? I'm going to keep going. It doesn't have so much to do with, oh, we just have to wait. I'm being patient. Is it time yet? That's not patience. As a Christian, patience is, I'm going to keep doing. There is a part of patience that says, I will wait until I have instructions. The other part of patience is, I'm going to do what I know I'm supposed to do now until I get further instructions. That's part of a Christian's life. We know what we're supposed to do now, so we need to be doing that so that when God says, oh, new plan, here's where we're going. Okay, I'm already in motion. One of the fundamental facts we teach the teenagers in youth group is, are you doing what you know you're supposed to do? I don't know what God's plan is for my life. Fine, you don't need to necessarily. Are you reading your Bible? You know you're supposed to do that. That's not rocket science. That's new doctrine. You're supposed to read your Bible. Okay. Are you praying? Okay. Are you doing what you're supposed to every day as you go through life? Are you being obedient to what you know God's Word says? All of us could do that. They say, man, it's been a rough day. Okay, did I do what I'm supposed to do? Did I spend time in God's Word? Did I spend time praying? Did I do what I was supposed to do as a Christian today? That's some heavy questions. Because as a Christian... There's a lot of stuff we, we've gotten accustomed to doing that is not what God would have us to do. And so understand that our goal is growth. Also, understand that trials are an active growth process. Now, the event of every trial doesn't last forever, but trials, I'm sorry, I know we're supposed to be encouraging on Wednesday nights, trials will never go away. There'll be new trials. But trials will never go away. You talk to the oldest person you know, what are you dealing with right now? They'll tell you. Talk to the youngest person you know, what kind of problems did you have today? All right, I always ask Liam, how did school go? Good. Doesn't tell me anything. Then I start asking questions about events. How did you do on your papers? Oh, yeah, I did okay. I said, you take your time, you write neatly, okay, all the kind of stuff parents are supposed to say to kindergartners. So how did class go? Well, so-and-so did this today. You know, they always have this problem they're dealing with. And I tried to tell him, don't do that. But he, the teacher, had to tell him, stop. Okay? <laughs> That's six-year-old problems. Big deal in life, right? Those trials never go away. So <laughs> I don't want to say let's be resigned to the fact because that sounds fatalistic. But the reality of it is trials are going to happen. They're designed for your growth to help your faith, and to help your patience, to give God glory. So when we hit a trial, 
Let's train ourselves not to be, it's okay. I don't like it, but that doesn't mean it's not good for me. We teach our kids this, right? I don't like broccoli. That's too bad. It's good for you. You're going to have to eat it, right? The big achievement at my house tonight was Liam ate all of his peas without mom having to set the timer. That's groundbreaking, folks. This is, Jesus was at our house tonight. I wasn't even there to threaten. Why? We teach our children, this, isn't, this may not be enjoyable, but it is good for you. And then as adults, we say, oh, it's no fun being an adult. This isn't fair. My friend over there is not having this problem. Just because it's not fun doesn't make it wrong, doesn't make it bad. It means we have to live as Christians and say, okay, what are we doing, Lord? Give me direction. Where are we going? And so our trial, the motive of our trial, what's God trying to do? He's trying to grow our, pa- our, patience, grow our faith, right? So not only do we have to have joy, not only do we have to understand this is about growth, but then last of all, look at verse number four. We need to look at the trial's masterpiece. Verse number four, but let patience have her perfect work. That word perfect does not mean without flaw. It means lacking in nothing, complete, all right? Not wanting, not unsound, okay? Let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Look at that last phrase. Perfect, complete, not missing anything. Entire, completed, wanting nothing, not missing any parts. Did you get the point? Three times he said the same thing. What's our goal? That our patience will grow to the level God needs it to grow in this trial. Because guess what? My patience grows. My ability to persevere, to move forward for God in spite of what's happening. My faith grows. My patience grows. My faith grows. God sees this faith. People see the patience. This is, this is how do we live. So what's the trial's masterpiece? It is patience. Your patience growth is essential to the Christian's walk. One of the things that bothers me might be a strong term that I notice now, and this may be because, in my opinion, I'm getting older, okay? Some of you don't agree with that. That's all right. I notice Christians who can't handle things. Something bad happens, and it, there's an explosion. Oh! Something happens, and they're yelling and screaming and throwing things. I notice that. Why? That's not how Christians should behave. Now, they've just been saved for three weeks, completely understandable. This is a teaching opportunity. They've been saved for 40 years, and they get mad, they're yelling, throwing stuff across the workshop. Something's not right here. Why? Because their faith hasn't grown to the point where their patience can grow, which means when God puts something in their life, I don't want this. One of the things my daughters, my wife is a very medically oriented person, right? Um, and she, she loves finding out stuff. She likes picking at stuff, okay, and all kinds of stuff. I'm not. I'm the other direction. I'm like, it'll be fine. And my kids are starting to learn if I have a problem, I don't go show mom yet. I need to figure out if I can fix it my own Why? Because if I go show mom, she's going to get the needle out, the tweezers out. Something's going to come out, start poking at stuff, and we're going we're gonna to get this thing out of here. That's right. If I have a problem, I'm not. Hmm. I'll cut the arm off. It'll be fine. I'll, you know, one arm's enough. All right. But the reality of it is, you know what? 
As Christians, sometimes that's our philosophy. It's not that big a deal that I can't deal with this. Is it really that big of a deal, Mr. Davies, that I don't deal with trials? Well, it is. Have you seen the world we live in? People are getting in fights over the most ridiculous stuff. No, not like, okay, this guy insulted my wife. No. I'm getting mad because that person took the shopping cart I wanted. What? That's the biggest thing you got going on right now? Somebody took your shopping cart? Really? That's the world we're living. Why? Because Christians haven't really shown the ability to trust God. That's what it comes down to. That's the baseline. Understand that patience is what we're after. Patience that lacks nothing and completeness is our end goal. Uh, Pastor Sum said this, patience is the true pearl. It is victory over irritation and trial. And it's possible. Now, I'm not going to be the one to stand up here and say it's possible in every situation, although according to the Bible it is. I need to work on it being possible in every situation because I had some situations in the last seven days I didn't exactly uh, exercise my patience in allowing my faith to be grown. Which is probably why God's teaching me this today. But if we're going to develop a pearl culture, we need to understand that we need to have joy. God's trying to grow us. And we're really aiming for patience, perseverance, the ability to be consistent. Every Christian struggles to live in outward obedience to God's Word. And they struggle to manifest righteous behavior. If we adopt this correct mindset that we see here of living in a pearl culture, it will enable us as Christians to show a pattern of good works. That's in the book of Titus chapter 2. If we're going to make a difference in the world before Jesus returns, we have to live differently, not just in the worldly people, but in the religious people. So here's, so Pastor, you all heard about the podcast idea? Okay. Pastor says, we need to do a podcast together. Because, you know, both of us are, have that much information we need to share with the world. But apparently somebody thought it was a good idea. But he said, if we do this podcast, you can't use so what at the end. That's what he told me. That's what he told me. No, so what? you got to find your own phrase. I don't like this phrase. This is what I came up with today. Now that you know, what will you do? Isn't that a good phrase? I don't know. It's too long. It needs to be shorter. I thought of Paul Harvey. Here's the rest of the story, but that's already been taken, so I can't use that one. In reality, as a Christian... Every time I come face-to-face with a trial, every time I come to church and hear preaching, every time I read my Bible, every time God speaks to me, this is the question I ask myself. Okay, I know it now. What am I going to do? We have churches full of Christians who know, but not do. So what trial are you facing right now? Every one of us is facing something. If you're not, buckle up. But you're facing a trial right now. Do you have joy? In spite of what's happening? Are you focused on the fact that this is a growing opportunity, not punishment? God's not giving you the stink eye. He's not turning the screws on you. He's not judging you. 
He's giving you an opportunity to grow? Are you focused on what we're trying to grow, our patience? See, the truth of the matter is, we have enough people in the religious realm in our world that don't live reality of what the Bible says. You want to distinguish yourself from those other religious people around you? Have patience. When God, on purpose, puts you in a trial. I thought about putting this in here tonight, but the reality of it is God puts you in a trial. Where's the Lord at? He's right there with you. In fact, if we use the Bible as context, I think you could argue from the book of Daniel, God's not putting you in the trial. He's bringing you into the trial with Him. What's He waiting for? <laughs> you to learn the lesson. It's not, it's not disappointing. Hey, God, I'm trying to teach you this. This is not bad. I'm doing something. Do you see what I'm doing? Okay, now are you going to do it? That's really what it comes down to. Now, that's the, first, that's the opening statement from the book of James. Isn't that encouraging? Life is going to be bad because God's trying to do something. Next time we talk, we're going to talk about wisdom and stability. Wisdom is something all of us should be seeking for. Stability? Something every one of us is seeking for, especially in the world we live in. But let's be, let's be Christians who approach trials with the right attitude. All right? Father, thank you.